We are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 today. We're going to try to cover this whole chapter. For uh, several months now, we've been going through this letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and we are going to end it today, uh, Lord willing. We're going to come to the end of this letter. Uh, some of you have been asking what we're going to go through next. Uh, I wanted to real briefly uh, give you some insight on that, and then we'll work our way towards today's text. Uh, the next, next seven Sundays after today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Our typical diet of preaching and taking in the Word together is to just go straight through books of the Bible, take them chunk by chunk. We're going to do that uh, again starting in September. But we're going to take seven weeks, and we're going to take one text each week uh, to talk through as we're getting closer to a school year starting and kind of re-engaging in some of our normal rhythms as a church family. We're going to take each of those seven weeks, and from a biblical text, we're going to teach about what we're calling seven values that we want to mark our church, mark every facet of our church life together. So one will be about grace, then the second will be truth, then love, family, godliness, joy, and contentment. We're going to take one week and look at a biblical text each week to help us see why those are biblical gospel values and how those can shape our life together as a church. And then at the very end of September, uh, after we finish those seven weeks, we're going to start a long journey. Uh, it, it'll take a good part of a year. We're going to go through the book of Deuteronomy together, which you may know nothing about. I love it. It's like one of my favorite books of scripture. I trust that God will use it. Our, our uh, pastoral team and leadership team has been thinking about this, and we're excited to uh, enter into that book together the very last Sunday of September. And it's going to dovetail with that Sunday is going to be when we're, we're going to do our second annual food truck Sunday. Uh, it's like September 26th, I think. Uh, we're going to try to have service outside that Sunday, uh, so you can be thinking ahead to that. Uh, I think it's September the 26th. But today we're going to uh, spend our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I don't know how many of you are Olympics watchers. We've been watching a lot of Olympics in our household. They only come around every four years or so. It's been five since the last ones because of COVID, but uh, I've seen several different posts, and I couldn't find one that was quite as concise and punchy as it might be, but I saw a bunch of different things on social media uh, this week that were pointing out how absolutely silly and absurd it is when us couch potatoes, us overweight, older, uh, non-athletic people will sit and watch these swimmers or these gymnasts or these divers or these sprinters and we'll sit on our couches like while we're eating ice cream or uh, popping more potato chips and we'll like critique were they vertical when they entered into the water? Or like, did she really stick that landing? Or, and we'll like pick apart these world-class athletes like, oh, he should have turned better on that, 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 that turn in the swimming. Uh, like, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it kind of came to the, the, the clearest head, so to speak, with an athlete named Simone Biles in our, uh, from our country. She's a gymnast who actually opted out of uh, a lot of the events. She's probably the best gymnast in the world borderline ever. Um, because of some difficulties that she's going through right now, she ended up withdrawing. And it was just sad and just confusing to me to hear so many people who have no skill whatsoever uh, in gymnastics or no knowledge of it critiquing her and slamming her uh, and saying how much of a sellout she is and all these sorts of, a uh, coward and all these sorts of things. It just made me think, are you serious? <laughs> like, we could all use, and what today's text is going to point us to, we could all use a healthy dose of some self-examination. 
Um, before we start or continue critiquing other people and looking at their flaws and looking at their uh, weaknesses and the things that they do wrong, that we would all be served, and Paul's going to help us in this and serving us, we'd all be served by taking a close look in the mirror, um, by taking some time to, to not look at other people and their flaws, but to, to see what's true of me. Uh, to evaluate my own life and where I am or where I am not. And so in today's text, we're going to see a really clear call to examine ourselves. You can see it in verse 5. We'll read through it in just a moment. That's where we're going to spend most of our time is in verse 5. But I want to read this whole chapter for us, uh, the, the context around that, to help us see why the Apostle Paul was challenging these Corinthian Christians to examine themselves and why the Lord would call us today to do the same. So we're at the very tail end of a long letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church at Corinth. It's a church he helped, not helped, he, humanly speaking, did establish. And the Spirit of God used him and his, his word to raise up believers, uh, to establish a church there. And he's, we've gone through it. I, I won't rehash all the things, but, but he's uh, covered a lot of terrain in this. He's consoled them and comforted them. He has praised them for the ways that they've repented, the ways that they've grown. He's instructed them. He has challenged them. He's been very firm with them. And as he comes to the end of this letter and starts uh, landing the plane, so to speak, wrapping it up, uh, we're going to see as we read this text that he's going to end the letter with a warning, a challenge, and a blessing. A warning, a challenge, and a blessing. And so I'd encourage you to listen for those, the warning, the challenge, and then the blessing as I read this text, and then we'll walk back through it and see how Paul closes this, uh, this spirit-inspired letter to the Corinthian church. This is the last correspondence that we have to them from him. So follow along with me, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 to 14. Apostle Paul wrote this. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again... I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me, for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. So in this closing of this letter, I think we see a warning from Paul, a challenge from Paul, and a blessing from Paul. And so I want, I want to show you those in this text and try to unpack it together and see how the Spirit may use this to speak to us today as well. So start with the warning. I, I'd summarize the first paragraph, verses 1 through 4, as a warning from the Apostle Paul. Uh, the language of warning is, is right there in it, right? In verse 2, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent. So uh, he, he's warning a certain group of people of a certain something, right? So who is he warning? Who, who is he about to issue, or who has he been issuing this warning to? He he's calls them those who sinned before, right? Verse 2, I warned those who sinned before, and all the others. Uh, there was this subset in, of believers within the Corinthian church who uh, had been hostile to the Apostle Paul, uh, who had been uh, defiant towards him, rejecting his authority, and he's been trying to correct them patiently, saying, you must listen to me as an apostle that Jesus has sent out. Uh, but we saw, if you were with us last Sunday, we got to just touch on this, but in the verse right before what we read this morning, verse 21 of chapter 12, there was also this group within the church who had been indulging in what he called impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. You can read that way back in 1 Corinthians. Paul, for a few years now, has been addressing this group of people within the Corinthian church who are just continuing uh, to show defiance towards Jesus, who are not just rejecting Paul, but are really rejecting Jesus and his authority over their life and just indulging in almost every way possible. And Paul is warning them. He says, I have warned you before, right? He, he's saying... Past tense, I warned you, and he's saying, even as I write this letter now, verse 2, I warn you now. I warn them now while I'm away. This letter is, is serving as a warning to that group now. And what he's warning them uh, is that when he comes to visit, this is going to be the third time he comes to visit them in person, he says in verse 1. He's saying, when I come to visit you again this time, as, as the one who has been warning you on multiple occasions, if I come to visit you again and you're unrepentant, what you see at the end of verse 2, what he's warning them could or will take place if they're not repentant, is that he says, I will not spare them. I will not spare you. And it, it, to us, that may feel cryptic of what does that mean? What's he not going to spare them from? What's he going to do when he arrives? But it's very clear as you read this letter and know the context of it that what he is warning them, what he will not continue to spare them from, but what he's actually going to bring toward them is did the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ, excommunication from the church, like a casting them out from the church, and potentially even doing what he had done, encouraged them to do back in 1 Corinthians 5, with a believer within their church, of even handing that, these people over to Satan. Uh, that is what he is saying he is going to do as an apostle of Jesus, that he's not going to keep sparing them from if they continue in their unrepentance. So he's warning them. There's this clear language of warning. And what, why he is needing to say this is because the, those Corinthian believers, those ones that he has been patient with, those ones that he's been gracious towards and showing mercy towards even in their disobedience, they have started to see his delay in discipline, his delay in like bringing force and bringing clear judgment of discipline upon these people. They have started to see that as weakness within Paul. 
They've started to see that as a deficiency of him, as something that is in their mind even tempting them to think he doesn't really even have Jesus in him. Like this resurrected Jesus who has so much power over Satan and death. Uh, that he says that he has Jesus in him, but verse 3 tips us off that Paul is saying to them, you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. And so these people, these unrepentant believers there in Corinth were starting to think, maybe Jesus isn't even in Paul. Maybe he's not really the powerful apostle that he claims to be. Maybe he's just a coward. Maybe he's a fraud. And what Paul is wanting to be clear with is that this patience has a shelf life. Like this patience has an expiration date. Like when I come to you this third time, if you're continuing in unrepentance, there's judgment that is coming for you. And God is going to be, use me as a human instrument to bring it to you. And Paul has had good reason to be patient with them, hasn't he? He, he, has not, he could not be accused by anyone in this church or by us of being hasty to discipline these people. He had been patient over years. He had written letters to them. He had made visits to them. He had been very patient with them, even calling them to repentance, even waiting to see it from them. He even references in verse 1 of today's text this passage when he says, Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's referencing Deuteronomy 19.15. It's a direct quote from the law of Moses about how uh, there needed to be justice done. Like people shouldn't just be hasty based on one person's accusation to just bring judgment upon people rashly and quickly. There's this patience to be exercised and, and considering the testimony of other people. And Paul's alluding to that to, to, to bear witness that I have been patient. I have been seeking to not be hasty in disciplining you and bringing the judgment of Jesus upon you, but I will if you continue in your unrepentance. And he doesn't care if they have viewed him as weak. He doesn't care if they have viewed him as a coward. What he wants most of all, and we're going to see this later in the text, is that they repent. That they see, no matter what they think of him, he wants them to see Jesus as Lord, the one that they follow, the one that they give their lives in service of. And so these people are seeking proof. They're t- they're, it's like they're putting Paul to the test, right? We're wanting to see if you have Jesus in you, if you really have the power of this resurrected Jesus within you. And Paul is saying, you're about to see it. And not in a way where he's like flexing on them and trying to intimidate them, but he's saying, Jesus will show his power through me if you continue in your unrepentance. And he, he references in the end of this paragraph today, he, he compares his ministry and Jesus's in some way. That, that there's this element of weakness, but then there's an element of power. And he talks about how Jesus was, was uh, crucified in weakness, verse 4, that there was this willingness to suffer, this willingness to bear uh, mistreatment, this willingness to even bear the wrath of God in his weakness as he was crucified. But as Paul continues the statement in verse 4, he says, but now Jesus lives by the power of God. The one who is crucified in weakness has now been shown to be all-powerful by the resurrection of his body once and for all. And so he's saying, though he was crucified in weakness, and that was clear to people that saw his weakness, his willingness to suffer, he has been raised in power. And Paul is saying that his ministry, Paul's ministry, is similar. He says in verse 4, we also are weak in him. Like there's this weakness that marks our ministry, that we're patient, that we're willing even to endure mistreatment and suffering as apostles. But he says at the end of verse 4, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. That the power of Jesus can be and will be shown by the apostle Paul if these people continue in unrepentance. 
in defiance of him and defiance of Jesus. And I, I, before we move on to this next uh, paragraph we're going to spend most of our time, I want to note here this, this importance of the theme of weakness in the letter of 2 Corinthians. If there's one thing that I hope that we can walk away from this letter, having spent several months in it together, it's the, the prominence of weakness in the Christian life. Um, the, the need to not shrink back from it, to hide from it, to be embarrassed by it, but to embrace it as part of who we are. As human beings who have limitations, but even as Christians who are called to suffer, who are brought thorns in the flesh, who are brought affliction, but who in those things also experience the grace of God and the power of God and the comfort of God that we read about in chapter 1 months ago. That, that we need not be embarrassed of our weakness. Paul was not embarrassed of his weakness. People could think he was weak. Uh, that he, they could think that he was a coward. They could think that he was uh, a fool. He does not care. And I just want us to, as a church and as individual Christians, to not be embarrassed of our weakness, to not try to pretend that we have it all together, to pretend that we're all wise, pretend that we're all powerful, but to acknowledge our weakness and embrace it as an opportunity for God to show his power, to, for him to show his grace to us. Paul was trying with this church to counter this idea that false teachers had been teaching them of what, what we would call like triumphalism. That because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can expect our life right now to just be abounding with blessing and wealth and health and, and accolades and uh, eloquence and that we're going to show every possible strength, every possible uh, ability. Paul was trying to correct that and say, no, the way of Jesus is a way of showing weakness, a willingness to endure suffering, to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge our limitation and to let that force us, press us to cling to the one who is not weak. The one who has been raised in power. The one who stands up for us. And so a takeaway I want us to have uh, as individuals and as a church is to not be embarrassed of weakness. To not shrink back from it, but to own it as an integral part of the gospel. Is that left to ourselves we are weak, but through Christ we are strong. And so Paul starts with this warning that, that he is going to come to them. And that if they're unrepentant, this subset of this church, there is going to be judgment that is shown. But as he turns into to this next paragraph, verse 5 down to verse 10, we see that he kind of turns the tables on these people, right? Uh, he, he says that, verse 3, like, you've been seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me. Like, you've been wondering if Jesus is in me and if I really represent him. He's saying, basically, as he gets into verse 5, take a look at yourself. Like, examine your life. Examine your faith, your obedience to see if Jesus is in you. That, that's what he's going to do in this second paragraph, this challenge that he gives them. If he led the first paragraph uh, with a warning, the second paragraph is a challenge to them. If verse 5, he says very clearly, he talks to these people who are questioning him and the legitimacy of whether Jesus is in him, and he says, examine yourselves. And he's emphatic about that, like examine you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And he says, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So Paul is telling them, take a look in the mirror, examine yourself, put yourself under the microscope to see if Jesus is in you. Like, stop evaluating me, stop uh, speculating about me, and take an honest look at yourself. And he's trying to help them see something, examine for something very particular, right? He's saying, examine to see whether you are in the faith to see whether you are in the faith 
And then as he asks the follow-up question about, don't you realize Jesus is in you? He's wanting them to evaluate, is that true of me? Is Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus, actually within me? If I look at my life, do I see evidence that the resurrected Jesus by his Holy Spirit is living within me? That is a sobering thing that he's turning the tables on them and the Spirit of God is speaking this to us today as we read this text is the importance of examining ourselves. And I'd encourage you to do this, to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself to see if the resurrected Jesus is dwelling within you by his Holy Spirit. Test yourself. Because it should be implied in this statement, this test he's telling them, this exam he's telling them to give to themselves, implied in that is this truth that if Jesus is in you, if you are in the faith, it should be evident. Right? That's implied in this. That there should be visible evidence that you have Jesus within you. And if you don't, that should bother you. That should be problematic for you. That should be sobering to you. Paul throughout this letter has been giving hints or sometimes direct statements about this of, of what is true of us if we've been united with Jesus. He said in chapter 5, right, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, Right? He he has said in chapter 5 also that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. That he has gifted us the Holy Spirit to live within us as a guarantee. That's a down payment of sorts of what's to come at the resurrection. He has said in chapter 3 verse 18 to this church that if we are united with Jesus, we are being transformed, he said, from one degree of glory to another. That there's going to be this growth that happens within us. Slowly but surely, we are going to be transformed. And so he calls these believers, these unrepentant Christians in Corinth, these unrepentant people who are claiming to have Jesus themselves and putting Paul under the microscope, he turns on them and says, evaluate yourself. Assess yourself. Is there evidence in your life that the resurrected Jesus is living in you? And his hope in doing that, his aim in calling them to look in the mirror, to start to examine their own life, is that they would see their unrepentance. And that they would see that as a sign that I don't know that Jesus is in me because I'm defying him. Like I'm going against the things that he calls me to do, the ways that he calls me to live. Paul is hoping that they will be, have, see that as a wake-up call to really evaluate their standing with the Lord, to really evaluate whether they really have received the spirit of Jesus. His desire, his foremost desire is not to come and discipline them, not to come and flex the power of Jesus on them, but to call them to repentance and see them do that. To, to see them return to a place of faith and obedience in the Lord Jesus. If you look down at verse 10, the end of this paragraph, he says, the reason I'm writing these things to you, that I'm warning you and challenging you basically to evaluate yourself, is that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord's given me. 
And he says the Lord's given him that authority for building up, not for tearing down. And so the point of this test, the point of this exam that he's wanting them to administer to themselves is that they may repent, that they may be restored or for initially be brought uh, to fellowship with Jesus. And ironically, it, it took me a while to understand some of this paragraph and his logic here, but ironically, what you, what you can piece together in the second paragraph of today's text is, is that Paul doesn't, he doesn't care what they think about him and whether he passes this test or not, like whether they think he has Jesus in him or not. I mean, he wants them to know the truth of that and to really believe that. He wants them to know, like, I passed the test. Like, Jesus is in me. But ultimately, he does not care. He, he doesn't care what his reputation with them is. Because think about this. If they really take him seriously and examine themselves, right? And they start to see, man, I really do need to repent. Like, I have been awful towards this apostle. I've been indulging in all sorts of things that I shouldn't be doing. And they actually repent. Guess what? When he comes this third time, he's not going to be showing them the power of Jesus, Right? that thing that they are waiting to see from him as proof that Jesus is in him, he's knowing like, he's kind of in a catch-22, like, dang, like if they repent, I wish I want them to, then I won't get to show that I really do have this power of Jesus within me, that, that unless they see that, they're not going to believe me, like they're not going to give me credibility. And he ultimately is telling them in this paragraph, I don't care, like I just want you to do right I want, that's what he says in verse 7, right? Uh, I don't care that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Like, it, it's not the ideal situation, but I think he imagines if I come back to Corinth, they're repenting, they may continue to think I'm weak. They may continue to think and wonder whether Jesus is in me. I don't care. Like, what more than my reputation is the worship of Jesus and the obedience of people to him. That's what he cares about most. So he's calling them, he's challenging them to examine themselves. And I, I really, truly want each of us to do this this morning and do this today, do this in the days ahead, is to take time to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself to see if the resurrected Jesus by his spirit is living in you. Is there, think, seriously think about this, is there anything more important for you to know than that? Like, is there any question you could ask of yourself that is more important than that? To know whether, I, whether you are in the faith. To know whether the resurrected Jesus is at work in you. There is nothing that even comes close to that in significance. To know, is that true of me or not? Am I united with him or not? And implied in this challenge to examine yourself is this idea that assurance of your standing with Jesus is important. Like it's something Paul wanted them to have is this knowledge, I am united with Jesus. And embedded in this also is this idea that assurance is attainable. That, that, it, that we don't just have to have it be this perpetual mystery and wondering, is Jesus really in me or not? Like Paul is telling them that they can know, that they can have confidence that Jesus is in them if they pass this test. So how do we get this assurance? How do we know? How do we know whether we pass 
or fail? How do we know whether Jesus is in us or not, whether we are in the faith or not? I wanted to give you a couple practical ideas of what to think through, but first and foremost, and this must be said, if you are searching for assurance of your standing with Jesus and God's favor over you before you examine yourself, you need to, and hear me right when I say this, you need to examine Jesus first. Like you need to to think about him and what he has done for you before you start thinking about things that are true in your own life. Because if you just start looking at you and think, well, I'm pretty good at this and like I'm, I'm moral in this way and I'm selfless in this way and you don't have a crucified and resurrected Jesus representing you, I don't care. And God doesn't care if you just start examining yourself and see all this goodness that you think exists in your life and you have no crucified, raised Savior, it doesn't matter. So first, I want you to, as you think about this idea of whether you are in the faith, whether you have Jesus within you, I want you to think about Jesus first. Examine him of sorts. Test him and think about what he has done for you. And as you think about Jesus, as you ask that question, what has he done for me? to gain me that standing with God. You need to think about the life that Jesus lived. Did he live a life that was worthy of God's reward? Did he live a life of obedience or not? Because that's essential for you. Did, did he actually live obediently to you? And as you search the scriptures, you will find that he did. That he lived perfectly. He lived obediently. And then you need an examining Jesus to think, did he truly suffer the wrath of God for me? Like, did he take the penalty that should have been coming down for me? Did he bear that in my place? As you read the scriptures, as you hear the testimony of the Spirit in them, you will find that, yes, he did. That, that when he went to the cross, that he took our sin as his people upon himself, and God the Father punished him. God the Father crushed him in our place, transferring our sin from us to him and laying down every bit of wrath and judgment upon him. And as you examine Jesus, you need to think, was he then raised for me? Was he resurrected from the dead? Because a dead Savior is no Savior at all. Uh, but a raised Savior is one who actually can represent you and intercede for you and who, who can invite you to the Heavenly Father. And as you think about Jesus, you must know those things about him. You must know those truths about Jesus and you must believe them first. Before you ever start to examine your life, you need to think, do I believe and know those things about Christ? Am I resting my soul upon those things that Jesus has done for me? Don't look first at what you've done for Jesus, but look at what he has done for you. The one who lived for you and died for you and was raised for you. So that must be first. That must be where you first and always return to as you think about your assurance of whether you really have the favor of God is by looking at what Jesus has done for you. But what Paul tells these people to do is a secondary, it's like a supplemental confirmation that we can find as we evaluate our own life. Uh, when we examine ourselves, when we start to look at our own life, it's like Paul is telling us, there is things you should see. There are things you must see if you want to have this supplemental confirmation. Not just that there's a Savior that could represent me, but that there's a Savior who actually does represent me. A Savior who actually has given me new life. A Savior who actually has sent His Spirit and to dwell within me. And that is what he is pointing these people to do and what I would encourage us to do today and in these days ahead is to, uh, to look for this supplemental confirmation of assurance, to look at our own lives and evaluate what we see. 
And I want to give you some questions in a moment that, that could be helpful in this process of evaluating, is there evidence in my life that Jesus was, is in me, that I am in the faith? But what I want to point out first, though, this is very important, is as you think about examining yourself, I was trying to think how to say this, I, w I would challenge you and urge you to make sure you are examining your present self. Like when Paul is telling these people to evaluate whether they're in the faith, he's not pointing them back to some moment they made a decision long ago or signed a card long ago or some pivotal moment in their life and trying to evaluate, was I serious when I did that? Like, did I really have faith when I did that years and years ago or months and months ago? What he is calling them to examine is their present state. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And so as you start to evaluate your life, I would challenge you to not just evaluate the former version of yourself, not just evaluate the teenage version of yourself or the young adult version of yourself or the seven-year-old version of yourself. That's where I used to look when I was looking for assurance was, did I have sincere faith and obedience back then? What Paul would tell you is look at yourself now. Examine yourself presently. Like, is there things that other people can see in my life today that is evidence that Jesus is within me, that, I, that I'm united with him. And as you do that, as you start to examine your present self, your present life, I would encourage you to make sure as you give yourself this test, to make sure, I'll, I'll say this way, that you use God's rubric, right? Not that you just use your own to evaluate and give yourself a test that you know you will pass, just what you think is good, what you think is right, what you think is important as a human being, but use God's rubric. Use his criteria to evaluate, is there evidence that God is at work in me? Am I actually living for him? Use his grading scale. And these are some questions I'd encourage you to ask based on various texts of scripture that speak to what the people of God's lives will look like, what they should truly look like. So ask yourself questions like this as you examine yourself thinking even back to chapter 1 of 2nd Corinthians ask yourself do I suffer with hope like when affliction comes to me when challenges come to me am I able to suffer with hope in my heart with hope in my soul like a, a, a confidence that there is good to come in the resurrection and the new earth do I suffer with hope not do I not suffer, but do I suffer with hope? A fundamental question you should ask yourself that you see over and over and over again in the scriptures would be, do I love fellow Christians? That's a criteria that you should evaluate. Do I love my fellow Christians? That was a huge theme of the, the ministry of Jesus that you see the apostle John especially take and run with, that, that they will know our love for Jesus by our love for each other. Does your life show that you love and value the fellow believers in your church and in your life? Another question you could ask yourself is, do I love God's word? Like, do I have a longing for it? Do I have even a taste for it at all? And if not, what does that say about me? What, what does that say that I have no delight at all in the word of God, no interest in it at all? If this is God speaking to us, this is his word to us, question you could ask yourself of evidence as part of this exam is do I forgive people like do I forgive people 
And if I don't, what does that show of whether I have received forgiveness from God the Father? Do I forgive people and show them the same grace that God has shown to me? The question you could ask yourself is, do I confess my sin? Do I repent of my sin? Or do I just ignore it and write it off or make excuses for it? Do I confess it and repent of it? question that chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians would, would, I think, prompt us to ask as a, a person of God examining our life is, am I generous to the mission of God? Like, do I see the resources that God has entrusted to me as things just for me to use or as things to give back to the Lord and to his work? The question you could ask is, am I prayerful? Like, th- does my life show as a sense of dependency upon God and, and a, a crying out to him? Or do I just try to to shuffle around things and try to grasp control myself and believe this illusion that I'm in control? Kids in the room, I'd encourage you, this is not just a test to give to to adults, but if there's kids in the room that you claim to follow Jesus, a question you could ask yourself to give a a test of sorts to yourself is, do you honor your parents? Uh, Do you love your siblings if God has siblings in your family? What does that say about you if you do or don't? It's evidence either that God is at work in you or that he is not. So there's countless questions we could ask. I want to make a point, though, as you seek to examine yourself, because I know there's people in this room who have very sensitive consciences. And as you start to hear those questions asked, you think, whoa, like I fail at that. I am weak at that. I don't know. Zero to ten, I probably have a one on that, a three on that. I I want us to remember this examination that Paul is calling these people to do and that I would be calling you today is not an examination to see if you have sin in your life. Because I guarantee you, if we're honest, if that was part of the exam, you do. Okay? I do. That's not a question. Like, you don't even need a test to tell that, right? Like, we, we all have sin present in our life. What we are examining to see is whether we have the Savior present in our life. Like, whether there's any signs of life in us. Like, whether there's any sign of an affection for Him and an obedience to Him and a, a desire for Him. It's like if somebody is laying on the ground and you're wondering whether they're alive, you can check for a pulse, right? And it might be faint. But it's a sign of life, right? It's a sign that there's some work of life still in this person. And that may be you today where as you examine yourself, you're like, there, I have a pulse. And that may be it. If that's you, like if that's you, you just say, I barely think I even have a pulse spiritually. Guess what we do with people who are laying on the ground who just barely have a pulse? We help them, right? Like we get them to places where people can care for them and and help resuscitate them and give strength back to their body. If you barely have a pulse, that is a sign to you. You need other brothers and sisters around you to help restore life in you, to help breathe life back into you, to, to challenge you, to grow you, to stretch you in the ways that the Lord wants you to do. So please do not, as you examine yourself, think that this is a test to see whether you have sin in your life but to see if you have the Savior in your life, to see if there is His work at all going on in your life. But if you would honestly say, because I know there will be some in this room, if you were to to test all those things, you say, I don't even have a pulse. Like, I, I don't think there's anything of Jesus in me. I have good news for you. Jesus can bring dead people to life. 
If you have no pulse, Jesus can start it. He can breathe life into you by his Holy Spirit. And you are a dead person. He can just make alive this morning. He, he has conquered the grave. He has borne our sin. He has been uh, ascended to the heavenly throne at the right hand of God the Father. And to dead people like you and like I used to be, he can breathe life into you. And he may be doing that today. And if he is breathing life into you today, what he calls you then to do as a response is to repent of your sin and place your trust in him. And it may be this morning that he is starting that heartbeat within you, that the resurrected Jesus is, is entering into your life. And as that is, if that is you, I would encourage you to talk to us, to, to pray with us today. I would love to spend time and talk with you about what that looks like for the resurrected Jesus to bring life to you. But we, are need, we need to examine ourselves. The last thing, last section, much shorter, the end of this letter, verse 11 through 14 is a blessing of sorts from the Apostle Paul. So he gave a warning, he gave a challenge to examine themselves, and he ends with a blessing. Uh, he kind of rapid fires these commands, verses 11 through 13, right? Uh, these are kind of things that would appear at most of the letters, uh, the end of most of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. They may feel kind of generic of sorts, but he tells them to rejoice. There's always reason for believers to rejoice. If we have the resurrected Jesus on the throne of heaven, there's always reason to rejoice. He says, aim for restoration. Uh, this is important for them. If you remember way back in chapter 2, there was this brother who had been unrepentant and who is repenting now. And they were slow to affirm him. They were slow to welcome him back into the brotherhood. And Paul is saying, we want people to be restored. Like, aim for that. Don't just try to judge people and condemn people. Aim for them to be restored just as I do. He tells them to comfort each other, right? That's an a, a echo back from chapter 1 where he talked about the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort others who are in any affliction. So he's saying, as you see people hurting, comfort them. Don't just ignore them. Keep them of arms like Comfort them. He says, agree with one another, right? They're... You read 1 Corinthians, there was tons of divisions in this church. There was division, division, division. And Paul is saying what his longing for them to, is to agree, to, to come to a like-mindedness about the issues of the faith and the practice of the faith. He wants them to come to a place of agreement, not disunity. So he calls them to live in peace with each other. He calls them to greet each other with a holy kiss. Please do not fear that I'm going to like challenge you to give each other kisses as we come and go on Sunday mornings. I, I don't know that that uh, translates into our culture today, but it was to be a sign of affection, and it had to be done in physical presence of each other, right? So it at least can be a reminder for us to have affection for each other, to, to be physically in each other's presence as the people of God, to not stay at arm's length from each other. And he, he says, all the saints greet you. I love that. It's just this kind of reminder that your church, Corinth, your church, CCC, is not the only church there is. There are saints in all sorts of places, all sorts of towns, uh, all sorts of places even within our town. There are saints uh, who are worshiping the Lord with us and who we will be with for all eternity. So he gives these commands, and there's this blessing in verse 14 that I absolutely love. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's much that could be said with this. Uh, I'll just say, I'll just note, uh, 
as he ends a letter like this, that's part of the reason why we end with a benediction. Our gathering Sunday by Sunday is speaking a word of blessing and favor of God over his people. Uh, but I love that he, it's a Trinitarian blessing. He mentions the Son, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions God the Father, the love of God the Father. He mentions the Holy Spirit. May the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I so appreciate that this is how he ends this letter because 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul's relationship with this church was one, had a lot of turmoil and tension and, and uh, even personal beefs sometimes and skepticism and, and some animosity even at times. And rather than ending the letter with this and leaving this, them with this word of stinging critique or, or just some zinger of a statement to lodge in their mind, what Paul leaves them with, what they would have heard as the last thing when this letter is read before he returns them is a kind and beautiful word of blessing. And I would note for you the very last word of the letter. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all like that includes people who were accusing him of things that includes people who were slamming him or doubting him that was uh including people who had wronged him that included people who were presently at that moment defying jesus himself doing all sorts of nonsense and disobedience and paul is speaking this word of blessing over them all that was the longing of paul's heart was that all of these people who claim christ would hold fast to him. All of these people who were claiming the name of Jesus would actually truly represent him and live for him. That was Paul's desire. That was his aim, even in the hard things that he had to say. And so this was not realized in Corinth yet, but someday it will be. It's not realized yet in our church yet, where there's this perfect fellowship, this perfect experience of grace, this perfect experience of the love of God, but someday it will. All of God's people will get to enjoy the benefits of God, uh, of his grace to us in Jesus, his love for us, and the, the fellowship of his Holy Spirit we will get to enjoy forever. I want to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, I didn't prompt them on this, but I want to give just some, a minute or two to have some instrumental uh, music playing. I wanted to uh, read a verse I think I can have up on the screen here. Psalm 139, actually two verses, 23 and 24. Uh, these these uh, texts is a, a simple expression, a, a prayer uh, from the psalmist at the end of Psalm 139 that I want to read for us and then just give you a minute or two to take time to pray to the Lord before we sing, uh, to, to really examine yourself as you can in a brief moment. Examine yourself. If there's no sin in your life, confess that to the Lord. Ask him for forgiveness. Uh, if you feel like, man, I, I think I sincerely passed the test, rejoice in that thank him for what he's done in your life but this is the the text this prayer of the psalmist i want to read for you and then i give you a, a few moments to pray the psalmist said this to god search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting i want to give you just a few moments to to pray that to the lord ask him to search you uh, try you to know your thoughts and if there's grievous things that he raises up and you confess them uh, thank him for christ and commit to living for him but i'm going to give you a few moments to pray and then we can join in singing after that but take time to pray and then we will direct you about singing